play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Tegan and Sarah. Tegan and Sarah Quinn are identical twin sisters from Alberta, Canada, and Grammy-nominated bandmates who have been touring together since they graduated from high school back in 1998. Their 10th album, Cry Baby, is out now, and they are on tour right now. Tegan and Sarah also sang the theme for the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome. Tegan and Sarah wrote a memoir called High School that was made into a TV show on Amazon Freebie last year, and their brand new book is a graphic novel called Junior High a coming-of-age story based on their lives. I asked Tegan and Sarah about their food memories from junior high, and then I asked you to send in stories about your food memories from junior high, and holy guacamole, no wonder all junior high kids are such jerks. Our bodies were running exclusively on french fries and instant ramen and ketchup and candy cigarettes, and Snapple was coursing through our veins. I'll play some of the messages I got from you, and we'll learn the history of the chicken nugget. All of that coming up later in the show, but first, my conversation with Tegan and Sarah. You wrote a memoir called High School that was turned into a TV show where you talked about all kinds of things from that age, um, including coming out and starting your musical career. So now you have a new graphic novel that's called Junior High. Um, Two-part question, what is this book about and when is preschool coming out? (laughs) (laughs) Um, that's amazing. We hadn't even thought about preschool, but what a great era to, to dive into next. Thank you. for that. <laughs> uh, Our initial pitch was very much based on our actual junior high or middle grade experience. But um, our junior high experience, I think maybe was kind of unique in the sense that like we went to a junior high right next to a mall and there was like gangs at our school and smoking. Oh. It was a harrowing experience, then it's not an exaggeration. So when I originally put together sort of like what a general idea for the graphic novel could be, our publishers were like, no, 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 <laughs> we, don't, we don't want any of that. That was sort of where we sat down and started to formulate a plan of like, how do we write about our experience in junior high, 12 turning 13, and take the most sort of universal, quintessential, funny, mortifying, sweet, memorable moments from reality, move it up to modern times, and then ask ourselves big questions. Like if we were 13 now, would we have come out sooner? Would we have played music sooner? Would we have liked Billie Eilish? And so junior high is sort of a mix of our true lived experience and then what we think we would be like now if we were 13. So it's a it's a real hodgepodge, but I think it's a really sweet book and it's Although aimed technically at younger people, all the adults we've sent it to are like, I love it. It's so great. Because it's, you know, peppered with a lot of adult humor. So, But none of the gang violence. None of the gang (laughs) violence. There's no smoking. There's no vaping. I I do think that it is aspirational. There's a sort of like sweetness and a tenderness to the story that we tell in this book. And we're doing it not because we want to convince anyone that our experience wasn't a little tougher than that. But I do think that there's this opportunity 
you know, to show people a version of childhood and especially a complicated part of adolescence that to have a, a kid coming out and have the parents respond the way that they do in this book. I mean, no shade on my parents for the way that they actually reacted when I came out, but this is a sort of a version of it that I think could have happened if we had been born 20 years later. You know, they were doing the best they could in the 90s. It's a little bit like rewriting history, but um, but tenderly. <laughs> Well, your coming out story is a little interesting because I've heard you say that you come from a liberal family, that your mom, you know, was a feminist and involved in social justice. But when it came to her own family, it was a little more complicated. Which I think is probably the case for most people. Like my mom really saw herself in a very specific way. And she really passed on those things to us. It was like anti-racism training in our house, like probably 20 years before people even, you know, we're talking about that on a sort of like universal scale. We talked about homophobia. We talked about sexism and misogyny. And we used that vocabulary in our house. When I started to realize that I was gay, I thought of gay people as being other, like not me, mm -hmm. even though I was having sex with girls and I liked mm -hmm. girls. I was like, those are those people and I am something different. And I think in some ways, you know, that's how my mom felt. It was like, you have to be understanding and open-minded and there's nothing wrong with this. And then I came out and she was like, well, I'm very upset, <laughs> you know? And it's sort of like, wait, how, why? I don't understand. Yeah. But that same complicated feeling that my mom had, I think a lot of queer people, we internalize that feeling ourselves too. You know, I, I had a lot of internalized homophobia even after I'd come out, even after I'd started to be a public figure and would say all the time, like, there's nothing wrong with being gay. And then I'd have these little voices, you know, sometimes saying things that I was like, oh my God, why am I so homophobic? I think you can be both things. You can be really liberal and open-minded and then sometimes have these discordant feelings that you have to sort of figure out. Okay. Rest of the interview, all food, all the time. Okay. So let's connect it to middle school and high school, because I feel like food, at least for me was a big part of that, but it was all junk food. I remember in oh. high school, <laughs> kids selling airheads at school. These were like the early entrepreneurs. Um, I remember pizza hut being served at school and being like sweet. Cause we are not allowed to eat this at home. And then in high school too, I mean, I lived on Taco Bell and I weighed like four pounds and it was amazing. Um, <laughs> what kind of food memories do you have from middle school and high school? I mean, vending yeah. machines in junior high was pretty next level. We had like a soda machine in the entrance that we would come into our junior high. In Canada, we had loonies, which is like a dollar coin. And I would yeah. like look for two loonies to go to school with because I would get a Coke on the way in the building and I would get a Coke on the way out of the building, which is not allowed in junior highs anymore. I don't think you're allowed to have soda, but that's why the 80s and 90s were better. But yeah, every, everything about junior high was like, freedom. You know, we suddenly were allowed to make choices about what we would eat at lunch and what we would eat for snacks without parent supervision in, in our cases. So it was like rooting through the house for, you know, frozen food that was easy to microwave. At school, it was like always nachos and cheese and a Snapple, you know, like just loading oh, up, Snapple. just loading up on like sugar and sodium and then, you know, going to math class after lunch, you know. <laughs> Yeah, my strongest memories of of the middle grade years is pizza pops, like frozen cordon bleus, Snapple, soda. We ate a lot of McDonald's. Uh, What's pizza pops? Pizza pops are like, I think you guys maybe call them pizza pockets. It's just like those microwave, like kind of like buns that have like cheese, meat and marinara sauce inside of them. It's like the second I say pizza pocket, I think of his burned tongue. You know, because you pop them out of the microwave. Yes. It's like an explosion of hot boiling tomato sauce and cheese in your mouth. 
basically when we hit grade nine, the excitement of like being able to after school, take the bus downtown and we'd go to McDonald's with our friends, get the two cheeseburger meal. It's incredible. Like just thousands of calories in one sitting. And then like, we always had stomach aches. That's like been our group of friends. Like we're still all friends with our junior high and high school friends. We're always talking about like everyone was constantly sick. Cause it's like, you eat McDonald's, feel sick. Then like an hour later, you go to 7-Eleven and get like just a pound of sugar candies, Slurpees, chips, just gut rot. Like I'm like, oh, yeah. I have so many food allergies and my stomach bothers me so much now when I try to eat salad. It's like, cause my body's like, Wah. Because you poisoned yourself in middle school. Yeah. <laughs> Tegan and Sarah weren't the only ones poisoning themselves with junk food. I reached out to you to see what your most memorable middle school foods were and what you ate as a latchkey kid after school. I was a bit of a latchkey kid and I would make myself top ramen. I'd boil it and then I would drain it and put it into a bowl and I would throw away the seasoning packet and I would just cover it in ketchup, latchkey kid spaghetti. And it was amazing to me. Hi, I'm Nikki from Plainfield, Illinois, and I went to middle school in the late 90s. Every day for lunch, my best friends and I, Meredith and Jackie, um, we would have what we called a feast. We would each order an extra large fries from the cafeteria, which were super lukewarm, oily, soft, wiggly fries. We would pile them all onto one giant plate and then just go crazy. And that was all we ate every day, five days a week was a feast. And then uh, every day I had stomach cramps around seventh period and I never put it together that maybe all that feasting was to blame. Hi, Rachel, this is Carol from Olympia. Middle school would have been about 1976, 1977. Here was our very favorite things. Candy cigarettes, cinnamon toothpicks from the ice cream man, Pop Rocks just came out, Tang and Ovaltine were our drinks of choice. I'm Carrie and I am from middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. I spent those junior high school years, seventh, eighth and ninth in the mid eighties. I was technically, I guess, what you could call a key kid, but we never locked our doors, so there were no keys, so I guess I was an unlatch key kid. Anyway, I had three things I really loved. My first one was what my mom taught me how to make was a scrambled egg with a little bit of milk in a styrofoam cup popped into the microwave. It's no wonder why I have dietary issues today, I'm sure. And the second one was Franco-American spaghetti. I loved taking the lid off the can and dumping it on a plate and slowly lifting it off the plate to hear that suction sound. Going on to my freshman year, I decided to graduate to Capri's with a mellow yellow or a tab. And by Capri's, I don't mean Capri Sun, I mean Capri cigarettes because there was no shortage of those laying around any one of my friend's houses whose parents were inevitably divorced and the mom was on a bowling team. Those are some really good times. Hi, I'm Stephanie. I was a latchkey kid, and one of my favorite snacks I made when I was home alone was I would take a tortilla, and I'd slather it in butter, and then I'd sprinkle cinnamon sugar on it, pop it in the microwave for 30 seconds, roll it up like a burrito, and eat it. And it would be like this buttery hot mess. 
I always thought it was delicious. I love your show. Thank you, Rachel. Bye-bye. I have a pretty good feeling that some of you are getting up right now to make a cinnamon sugar tortilla roll up. All right, time for a quick break. But when we come back, Tegan and Sarah share their last meals. We learn what the chicken nugget was originally called. And we'll learn about the strange eating habits of raccoons. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Let's talk about your last meals. Uh, Tegan, if you want to go first, what would your last meal be? Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is something we did talk a lot about actually when we were in junior high and high school, where we would all lay in the camper or the tent at the end of the night, and we'd all talk about what we would eat if we could have anything. And I feel like last meal is that and I do admit that it would probably be something disgusting, like some sort of fast food, like, cause I just, it brings me such comfort. So I would probably just choose like McDonald's, which is just, it's awful. Like to think that my last meal would be like a, <laughs> like a big packer of quarter pounder with cheese and fries, but like, it just... I have so much memory of my family and friends and good times attached to it. So I'm a garbage person. I don't know what to tell you. What would be the whole picture? What would you order exactly? Who would be there? What would the memory be that you'd want to recreate? God, well, I was just about to say like, no, I would want to be alone because like how embarrassing that that would be my last meal. But um, <laughs> my go-to is like a quarter pounder with fries. And then I'm, I'm really in a splurging mood. I'll order a six pack of chicken McNuggets with sweet and sour sauce on the side. And then of course, fountain soda is the best. So I would get Coke, lots of ice. I don't know, last meal. I mean, def- death and mortality is definitely on my mind a lot um, at this age and this time frame. So I have like a weird thing where I'm on the fence. I don't know if I'd want everyone I know and love to be there watching me eat my last meal to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So probably just like my partner sitting on the water eating my absolutely disgusting <laughs> last meal with them would be pretty great. I read, I think maybe it was on your sub stack. You guys wrote something about going out to maybe Wendy's with your grandparents. And you said that there was a certain way that you ate chicken nuggets when you were a kid. Yeah. Sarah and I, we used to tear all the chicken. We'd get like a, a nine piece each of us. And they were still serving it in styrofoam containers then. So you'd put all the little chicken skin bits torn up in one side and then all the naked little fake chicken meat would be in the other side. Like, so like all the chicken meats in one side and then the middle, like white meat part is in the, and then we would dip that in the sweet and sour sauce. And then you would eat the chicken skin bits last. By the way, it is not chicken skin. Just so you know, Tegan. It Sorry, is just... like the, the, the coating, the breading. Yeah. yeah, it's just the breading. Like that's not chicken skin. But as a kid, we would have called it chicken skin. Yeah. 
He's like, maybe. Maybe. I don't remember referring to it as chicken skin. There's, but... there's like, I'm a contrarian. I must find fault in, in it. No, I just like, I, do, I just actually was curious if you actually thought it was chicken skin. Because I just wanted to like, correct, just make sure you know that it's just the breading. Yeah. Just no, so I'm... you know. Yeah. <laughs> For her last meal, Tegan Quinn wants McDonald's, a quarter pounder with cheese, fries, a six-piece chicken McNuggets with sweet and sour sauce, and a fountain Coke with lots of ice. We'll get to Sarah's last meal in a little bit, but first, we need to talk about chicken nuggets. McDonald's may have popularized the chicken nugget, but they certainly didn't invent it. Chicken nuggets were created by Robert C. Baker a member of the American Poultry Hall of Fame. He was a poultry scientist. He worked primarily at Cornell in upstate New York. That's Emmalyn Rood, author of Tastes Like Chicken, a history of America's favorite bird. He basically saw chicken farmers in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, when he was growing up, really struggling to make a profit. Farming was becoming increasingly difficult. The problem was I think there was a lot of extra bits and bobs left out. So he figured if he made a product that could use these extra parts of the chicken that could help chicken farmers make more of a profit, uh, that would benefit the entire chicken industry and there'd be less food waste. So he invented a whole bunch of chicken products, chicken hot dogs, chicken hamburgers, a bunch of gross, weird stuff that I'm sure no one wants to eat, chicken egg hybrid products that must not be spoken of. <laughs> so I'm sorry I brought it up. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty grim. I can't actually remember the names of them, but I, the pictures are seared in my mind. But yeah, amongst the most famous was the chicken nugget. The original name was the chicken crispy. It was basically just ground meat coated in batter and then deep fried. The recipe for this he published in a Cornell bulletin in 1963. That was the origin of the chicken nuggets, a man named Robert Baker. It started, you know, as an experiment, as a part of his job. How did he get it out into the world? Who packaged this and sold it? Um, so that that is the interesting thing about, I mean, it was just academic research. So it's just public domain, basically. He put it out into the world, open source, um, and anyone who wanted it could grab it. Uh, the biggest innovation was this fact that you could um, attach a breading to ground meat. No one had quite yet figured out how to do it. Uh, the other thing, no one else had quite yet figured out how to both freeze and fry this breading and have it still stick on. Um, so those are the big innovations that sort of allowed other people to riff and um, take a hold of this recipe. Um, who was the first to do it and mass market it? I'm not really sure, but the first company famously to do it uh, was McDonald's with the chicken nugget, chicken McNugget, apologies. In 1979, McDonald's chef Rene Arendt patented the Chicken McNugget. They were looking for a new chicken product to add to their line just because chicken was becoming um, increasingly popular. Red meat was being seen as more of a health issue. So people were definitely starting to change their diets in response to um, health concerns. So they're looking for chicken products. They went through a few. One was a deep fried chicken pot pie. One of the things Renee tried to produce was also uh, an onion nugget, which didn't quite work. Uh, but then they finally settled on this chicken nugget. It was first locally introduced and it was super popular. And I think it was widely distributed by the early 80s. So 1983, it was a staple in McDonald's stores nationally. If you look closely, you will notice that McNuggets come in four shapes. The bell, the boot, the bow tie, and the ball. The idea was to make them look more natural. So they're not all one oval shape, but keeping them to these four shapes ensures even cooking. 
In the end, Robert C. Baker's plan to make chicken farmers more money worked. People started eating a whole lot more chicken. So basically prior to World War II, people rarely ate chicken. It was a very rare commodity reserve for once a week. Roast chicken as a Sunday supper was a very sort of a prestige luxury dish to end the week. But in the middle of the 20th century, you get huge innovations in veterinary science, in chicken farming, in business innovation um, that basically allowed chicken producers to mass-produced chickens for the first time. So all of a sudden, in the post-war period, you get a huge boost in chicken production. Uh, it took a while for Americans to figure out how to eat all of this chicken. Uh, so this is a very recent phenomenon, eating this much chicken. Our grandparents would have been shocked, to say the least, or our great-grandparents. It's around 100 pounds per person per year, which is a lot. She says chicken is plentiful, affordable, healthier than red meat, relatively bland and unoffensive and doesn't have religious restrictions like pork. I'm yeah. so curious why you wrote this book. How did you get interested in this particular subject? Uh, I mean, I personally really don't like chicken. I think it's um, I'm not going to say my true feelings, uh, but I'm just not a big fan and I've always not been a big fan. Yeah. And then this was my undergraduate thesis. I, ha I was I had to write a big research topic and I was like, I'm going to try to understand why people eat so much chicken. It just grew from there. Know thy enemy, I guess. It's just very, I'm just very curious about why. Why? So much chicken all the time, everywhere. It's weird, guys. It's very weird. Emmeline will be very happy to know that Sarah's last meal is 100% chicken-free. I think it would be sushi. Specifically, it would be a lot of tuna sashimi. Not like that pink tuna sashimi, but like when it, when it comes and it's just like that almost like blood red. To me, for some reason... Like the vibrancy and the like darkness and the, it just makes me feel like such a carnivore when I'm eating it. Like I just, like my mouth is watering. It just feels like salty and perfect somehow. And that's a good point. Cause I feel like people put fish in this different category of people who would describe themselves as carnivores, but I mean, you're eating pieces of raw fish. fish. There, to me, there is nothing more primal than when, when a plate arrives with just hunks of deep, dark, red, raw tuna. Like there's just like, to me, that is the most primal feeling of like getting the sustenance that I want, like just like feeding my hunger. And that like, it's just a big pile of that. And it, and actually when I got really into sushi, which I did not really love sushi until I was in my probably late twenties, similar to, I think probably a lot of people growing up in Calgary in the 1990s, you know, fish was something that you ate breaded as Tegan would say with fish skin on it. And, um, maybe you peel off the fish skin, but you know, I didn't even eat salmon, you know, like I was really, really, uh, a, a, the, ch the child and product of like middle-class landlocked farmers. Like fish was just something that to me smelled gross, made the house stinky. Yeah. I just didn't like it. And then at some point I really developed a taste for sushi and specifically sashimi. I, I couldn't live without it. And like dumplings, it's my last meal. So I feel like it's okay to mix a bit of like some, some like classic you know, Chinese soup dumplings. The Shaolong Bao. Yeah. Just and you guys, you yeah. live in Vancouver right now, right? Yeah. I mean, I live in Seattle. So we go up to Richmond, you yeah. know, to eat really good dim sum. It's really fantastic. And I've only recently come back to Vancouver. I had lived here briefly after high school and then ended up in Montreal and New York for a lot of my 20s and 30s. Vancouver always felt like a bit like dull or something. And then at some point I had disposable income and a more refined palette for food and drink. And I was like, okay, one of the big, you know, pluses of living here is just like the unbelievable food. It's just, there's just wonderful, 
um, restaurants. There's like a, I think a diversity of food here that is, is really next level. And I'm not like somebody who like lives somewhere because of mountains and oceans. It's a very beautiful city, but I want to be able to go to restaurants and feel like my mind is blown. And I feel like that really can happen here in Vancouver for sure. Well, I feel like you have two sides because you have your side that loves nice restaurants and sashimi. And then you also describe yourself as someone who eats like a raccoon. Yeah. What is well, that that's mean? at home. That's at home. <laughs> I mean, to me, there is nothing more perfect than the nights where I am alone in my house and I can just eat to fill the void. And I do it standing at the counter, often right out of a container, uh, a leftover container or a pot. Like I, I will make like a pasta for myself and I won't even dirty a dish. You know, I'll just eat it straight out of the pot. And now that I have a son, like a baby who eats solid food, if it's my wife's night to, to feed Sid, then often she will make a meal that we can all eat as a family together. Like last night we had like a pasta, she grilled mushrooms on the barbecue and it had like, it was, it was, it was really delicious. And on my nights, if I'm like warming up like frozen sweet potato from the freezer, I'll just put a couple cubes extra in for me. And then I'll just eat it it like a raccoon. For her last meal, Sarah Quinn wants deep red tuna sashimi and Chinese soup dumplings. And when she's alone at home, Sarah says she eats like a raccoon, but I'm pretty sure she doesn't mean that literally. Raccoons douse their food in water before they eat it. It looks like they're washing the food. And at first that's what researchers assumed they were doing, but it has nothing to do with hygiene. Water increases the tactile nerve responsiveness of a raccoon's paws. Getting their paws wet increases their sense of touch and allows them to feel more textures so they can better identify what they're holding and decide if they should eat it or not. I read an analogy that makes a whole lot of sense. Just like we need light to help us see, raccoons need water to help them feel. And this is such a defining feature of raccooniness, it is built into their name. The scientific name for a raccoon is Procyon lotar, which translates to dog-like washing. This kind of raccoon trivia is what I talk about at parties. Invite me to your party and I will be sure to wash my chips and dip in your birdbath and tell you all about raccoons. I also have some really cool squirrel facts. Okay, so much more coming up after the break, including what it was like for Tegan and Sarah to eat on tour with Neil Young when they were just teenagers. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Tegan, you said that you remember the first thing that you ever cooked. 
the first thing I actually really remember doing is my mom taught us how to push a chair over to the counter and pull down Pop-Tarts and pop those in the uh, toaster. We were kind of on our own really young in terms of cooking for ourselves. And so there was a lot of garbagey things, but Pop-Tarts were the first thing. And then it was like, you know, Ichiban soup and we grate cheese on it. And then like when we got more gourmet, we would add like fried ham to our Ichiban soup and grated cheese. But like, you know, we packed our own lunches, which is really sad. It was like, we would just take like ramen, not make it like get to school, break up the pieces and pour the packet in and then just eat it dry, which just makes me so thirsty to think about. Because <laughs> yeah, as soon as you said it, I actually got thirsty. As soon as I just said those words, I was like, I'm so thirsty. <laughs> but why were you sad? That was like, it made you basically like a famous person on the playground if you had dry soup. Like we, there was a girl who always had like fresh vegetables or her family. They were like, had a garden and she always had like great food and sandwiches and whatever. And we were like, yeah, we don't want that. We want to like stick our hands inside of that girl's dried soup bag and take a handful <laughs> of that. You know, that's what we wanted. It's interesting you you use the word currency because actually a couple of years ago, I did an interview um, with someone who works in a prison and they said that ramen is worth more than cigarettes. Yeah. So it truly is currency still in Hell establishments yeah. like schools it's, and prisons. It still is in my house. My partner loves ramen and we like negotiate how many nights a week we can make it. Cause like, but we now, now thanks to TikTok, of course, we know like if you add like some fresh vegetables and seaweed, you make in an egg, you feel like you've actually stepped it up a little bit. I will say I'm very proud that we learned how to do laundry and cook really young. And when I'm saying young, I mean like we were five or six years old when we were mm. starting to prepare things for ourselves. We were those kinds of kids, you know, that really wanted to be like, look, I can do it. I, we were not, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. We were not like providing all meals for ourselves. Neglected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then beyond that, it sounds like you really learned to cook more at your grandma's house. Yeah. So Sarah and I, we spent a lot of time at my mom's mom's and she was amazing at teaching us just the basics. You know, we learned how to make pie and we learned how to make all sorts of stews and soups and you had to help out. But Sarah and I, we used to just like after school, we would just like put ice cream in a dish. And then we would, my grandma had a big Island in her kitchen and one of us would stand on one side and the other would sit on a stool and we would do cooking shows and talk about how you make the ice cream and you add the chocolate sauce and you do this and do that. Sarah also learned to cook from a chef she dated in her early 20s. I was like madly in love with her and invited her over for dinner once and cooked absolutely everything out of the box, like stovetop stuffing, mashed potatoes in a box, like embarrassing. She ate it. I don't know why. She must have liked me a lot, but she immediately started to teach me how to cook. And she was like, all the things you made, you can make yourself and it's really easy to do. And so I learned a lot from her in my early 20s, but I, I felt a lot of embarrassment because we, you know, really didn't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and healthy foods. Like it's, it was a different time in the eighties and nineties, especially with two working parents and, you know, just not a lot of resources, but in hindsight, in our defense, we actually did know how to cook a lot of things. And we made basic things really interesting. Like we never just made Ichiban. We never just made ramen. We always added things to it. We I didn't I just make macaroni and cheese. We cooked a chicken cordon bleu in the oven and chopped it up into huge pieces and put it inside of the macaroni and cheese. That's what I'm saying. Consuming like, somewhere in the neighborhood of probably five to 6,000 calories <laughs> in one meal. We thought we were cooking. <laughs> I also admire your confidence that you were dating the chef and you were like, you know what? I'm going to make you stovetop. Like you didn't even try to impress her in a way that you didn't No, I did. I was trying to impress her. Like that's what uh -huh. I thought was impressive. I mean, I that's a whole other episode is my confidence around things that I know nothing about. Um, I did. I felt very confident. I had no idea. I wasn't even ashamed then. It was only in hindsight that I looked back and went like, my God, 
I called my mom once and said, I'm in the grocery store and I'm in this section. It's called fruit fruits. How come we never ate any of this shit, mom? You mentioned soup earlier when you were talking about some of the things your grandma taught you. You said that you don't like soup. Will you tell me the story about where your soup hatred came from? Well, this is so sad. So poor Sarah. I mean, this is where Sarah really had to lean into being a good sibling. But when Sarah and I were kind of the, between second grade and sixth grade, we used to go to what's called a day home. It's basically like a babysitter near the, the school that we went to. And, you know, the woman there took care of like six to eight kids. So Sarah and I were sort of like there mornings, lunchtimes and after schools because my mom was working. And and this woman, she cooked soup three times a week. Cook is generous. She opened cans of Campbell soup and poured them into a pot. And, and it was like tomato soup was Monday, mushroom, cream of mushroom was Wednesday, some sort of corn chowder, you know, like it was all these gross flavors. Like if we got chicken noodle, I got to eat, but otherwise I couldn't eat it. I, to this day, don't like tomato, don't like creamy soups, don't like mushrooms. And so Sarah would have to like take bites of my soup when oh woman's back was like turned to help me consume my lunch because I just couldn't do it. So I like kind of existed three days a week on saltine crackers and milk because I just, I couldn't bear to eat any of that food. And it's so funny because later on, I'm like, I'm severely allergic to tomato. <laughs> like, like all these things that I like rejected as a kid. Like I have like intolerance for like corn, all these things. And, but yeah, I hated soup. Like now, even to this day, I can only eat clear soups. Yeah. It's funny. These things that stick with you. I have like a traumatizing childhood soup memory too. Where really? what is I, it? Yeah. I think I was, I was either four or five and I was at my next door neighbor's house. His mom gave us alphabet soup and I'd never had it before. And I thought it was awesome. I was like, I can't believe this. Like the letters they're in the bowl and you can make a word on the spoon. And I was into it and I enjoyed the whole thing. And then I was little, I think I was four. And then when I was done, I just got up and I left the table and I thought we were going to go play. And I remember the mom was upset because I didn't put my bowl in the sink and I didn't have to do that at my house. I don't know what she said to me, but I remember feeling very ashamed. And as an adult, I'm like, dude, you were so little. Like, but I remember it so much, like how, how embarrassed I felt. And it just shattered my, my lovely soup moment. Wow. Trauma attached to the soup. Totally makes sense. I I totally get that. It's funny when you're a kid, these very small things that adults probably didn't even realize, you know, like I remember going into a room and my aunt and uncle were in there having a conversation and they were like, can you, can you get out? And I just like carried that memory till today. Like it's been like 38 years. And for some reason I still (laughs) feel this shame that I opened a door. You know what I mean? Like, it's so funny how, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's, I was actually going to say, you know, one of the motivations for me to adapt my eating habits was shame. We graduated high school and then we were sort of like adults, you know, we were like on tour and we were, one of our first tours was with Neil Young. You know, we toured all summer with adults, you know, and getting to the catering and just being like, where's the fried things? Like, where are the <laughs> foods that I recognize? And you know, and just that feeling of shame starts to compound. Like I understood like food is a language and, you know, and going into certain restaurants or going to certain countries, you can set yourself back. You know, like we went to Japan when we were like 19, the shame of not understanding the food, it sets you back a few years where then you're like, okay, avoid at all costs going to a sushi restaurant. But then on the other hand, in some ways, shame was what freed me from those limitations because I met a girl when I first moved to Montreal when I was 22, you know, she wanted to make me dinner. And I remember her coming over and making a seared tuna steak with a mango chutney I want salsa. That now. I would love that. And, and I remember looking at the plate and this tuna steak that to me was raw and then this mango 
chutney salsa thing. And I just was like, there's literally not one ingredient on this plate that I want to put in my mouth. And I just was honest, you know, I was like, I don't think I want this or I don't want to eat this. And I just remember the shame of that, you know, was a tipping point for me where I was like, I have got to grow up. Like I have got to try these things. I remember going home for Christmases or, you know, going home and seeing my parents and then recognizing their limitations. Like my mom always being like, ew, fish. Oh, this is where I learned it. I want to be different than them. And then being annoying and saying like, you guys are so close-minded. Burgers shouldn't be cooked all the way through. Like, you know, just, I can remember myself doing that because I was like, oh, I see that this is more sophisticated. This is higher class. And yet here I am 42 eating like a raccoon. Totally. That I remember, you know, going to live in the dorms right out of high school, of course, when I was 17 and being embarrassed of the things that I wanted to eat on the salad bar. Cause I thought people are going to think I'm weird if I eat beets, because in 1997, people weren't eating beet salads like no. <laughs> they were later. And so I avoided these certain things thinking people were going to think I was weird. And then, you know, it only took me like a, probably a couple of weeks until I started eating, but you live in this little bubble of your family. I mean, I remember, you know, going to a friend's house in elementary school and they prayed before they ate. And I felt so uncomfortable. I didn't yes. know that people did that. Like, it's just so personal these meals that people create within the four walls of their homes with their family. You're talking about ritual and deep, you know, family tradition is this like amazing thing that you treasure about your own family. But yeah, when you step into someone else's, especially if you haven't been prepared for it or depending on how you are, it can be really overwhelming. And that was Tegan and Sarah's last meal. Pick up Tegan and Sarah's new graphic novel, their book, Junior High. Make sure and grab their latest album, Cry Baby, and get a ticket to see them live. They are on the road now, and they will be touring for the next several months. You can find a link in the show notes. It was so nice chatting with you, and I want to tell you, I've listened to interviews with the both of you for years, and I think you are honestly two of the best interviewees. You're such good storytellers. You're so smart. You're so well-spoken. And I was thinking this morning, you know, now little kids, sometimes when they want something from their parents, they do these like PowerPoint presentations. I was thinking that you could be an example of why you don't have to go to university and you can still be extremely smart and articulate (laughs) because you are. And I feel like a kid could be like, listen to them. I don't want to go to college either. People would always say that about Steve Job or Job, Job, Steve Jobs. Uh Yeah. Yeah. He became the biggest, most influential, whatever. And he didn't go to college. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're like that, but for lesbians. That's so sweet of you to say. I mean, we certainly have lots of experience being interviewed. So we've, I think we've gotten better, but the truth is we just love to talk. If people are interested, then we're interested. And so it's just a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to meet you and to get to talk about our favorite topic, which is food. Thanks to Emmeline Rood, author of Tastes Like Chicken and editor of Eaton, a food history magazine. Thanks to all of you who sent in your ketchup-y, capri-smoke-stained junior high stories. I got a lot of good stories from you guys. I just didn't have the space to play them all. But please know that I listened to and loved every single one. If you want to be a part of a future show, make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm at Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. That is where I always put the call out. And make sure you're subscribed to my newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a second right now, before you put your phone away, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It is a free but very meaningful way to support this independently owned and produced show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.
Oh, that would be an interesting breakfast sandwich, though, to put the eggs between two Pop-Tarts. That's probably yeah. someone right now in Brooklyn is like opening their pop-up and it's like literally totally. homemade organic Pop-Tart, vegan Pop-Tarts with like, you know, some kind of like egg filling. The pop-up is called Pop-Up because of the Pop-Tarts. Are we in business together? Up. I are, think we are. Shake on it. Are yeah. we starting a Let's business? I feel like I like this. I would love to start a Pop-Tart egg sandwich <laughs> business with you. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> we might we might be onto something. I don't want anyone to see what I was doing before this came on, which for me was putting my cat in the dryer because that's where she likes to go and she cries in front of us until she gets lifted in. Wow. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Memorable middle school and latchkey food. Memorable middle school and latchkey key food. And latchkey kids, and latchkey kids. Oh my God, I, that is impossible to say. And latchkey kids.